What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. On February 11, 2010, a truck driver passing through Greensburg, Pennsylvania noticed something strange sticking out of a garbage can in the parking lot of Greensburg Salem Middle School. While initially his first thought was to ignore it and continue on with his evening, he felt strangely compelled to go and investigate the situation. What he didn't realize at the time, however, was that upon peering into that garbage can, he would be involving himself in one of the most gruesome crimes the state had ever seen. Why was that? Well, stuffed unceremoniously inside the refuse container was none other than the body of 30-year-old Jennifer Doherty. And this wasn't even the worst part, because while any case of murder is horrific, it would later become apparent that this situation was on another level of brutality entirely. An investigation would reveal that, in the hours leading up to her death, Jennifer, who was herself mentally disabled and would be deemed to have the capacity of a child, would have been tortured by her captors in the most degrading and inhumane way imaginable. This is Monsters. The death of this disabled young woman is a tough one to listen to, but nevertheless, it's also a necessary one to remember as, given how horrendous her final hours were, the least history can do for Jennifer Doherty is keep her story alive. And this story would start for her back in November of 1979, as it was then she was born into a loving family in the Mount Pleasant borough of Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania. Despite her happy home life, childhood wasn't always easy for Jennifer as, suffering from a mental disability which saw her peers quickly exceed her intellectually, she found herself being a constant target for bullies. According to her mother and sister, at one point the young girl would regularly come home from school in tears after she'd been picked on in increasingly nasty ways by other kids at school. This wouldn't just be things like name-calling either, as at times it would even get to the level of being physical when gum was put in her hair or she was pushed around by the other girls. Of course, it's easy to look at this kind of behavior now with modern eyes and see it as being nothing less than a hate crime on account of the fact that this was a girl who was very clearly disabled. At the time, however, while such behavior was still frowned upon, it wasn't treated as seriously as it would be today. Back then, it would just be seen as regular schoolyard bullying, something which many kids had to deal with. Not that it excuses it in any way, but it does provide some context as to why there wasn't more of a big deal made out of it by Jennifer's teachers at the time. It also explains why a group of young and foolish children felt like it was okay to make fun of a mentally challenged girl, something we hope they all felt regretful about as they got older and more mature. 
It doesn't, however, explain why, as Jennifer got older and entered the adult world, the bullying against her would continue. Even in the more lax time period of the 90s, surely grown men and women would have better things to do than go after the disabled. While this would be the case for most, it sadly wasn't the case for everyone. The fact that Jennifer was bullied at school shouldn't suggest her childhood was a bad one. No, as we mentioned earlier, she did have a loving family to support her and, in spite of the fact a group of kids in school seemed to have it in for her, there were others who became very friendly with the youngster. In fact, by all accounts, she found it very easy to make friends as a youth because, in spite of her limited mental capabilities, she was a very warm and easygoing person who seemed to genuinely care about others and drew them into her. As her mother, Denise Murphy, would later put it, she was a kid who liked to have fun and who was generally pretty trusting of people, usually seeing the good in them above all else. She loved to dance and she loved to sing, making what eventually happened to her all that more tragic as there was clearly a huge flame of life within her ready to burn for many more years to come. By the time 2010 rolled around, Jennifer was now a fully grown woman, albeit one who had never been able to mentally move beyond childhood as she was still at the emotional level of a 14-year-old. But while this did make it difficult for her in various aspects of her life, such as taking care of herself, engaging in romantic relationships, or even holding down long-term employment, there were some silver linings to her condition. And perhaps the biggest of these was the fact that, while so many of her peers had grown older and, as a result of this, more world-wary, Jennifer had never lost that spark of magic in her eyes which most children have. This made her beloved to almost everyone who knew her in her local community of Mount Pleasant. It did, however, also lead her to having a pretty naive view of the world and any potential dangers which lay within it. On top of that, it also left her vulnerable to those who might seek to exploit her as it was unlikely she'd be able to recognize this given her limited capabilities. This is why her mother and her sister were particularly protective of her, always wanting to make sure she was doing okay in life and was not falling prey to bad influences. They also didn't want to be overprotective of her either, as, in spite of everything, she was still someone who deserved the opportunity to go out and live life to its fullest. With that in mind, when Jennifer told her family she'd made some new friends in nearby Greensburg, they were happy for her and pushed her to keep seeing them. After all, any new experiences were a good thing for her, and being able to stretch her social circle a little further would likely do wonders for her self-confidence in the long run. But why was she in Greensburg at all? Well, as it happened, she would regularly travel there alone so as to attend dental or counseling appointments. It was during one of those visits that she'd first come in contact with a group who would later become known as the Greensburg Six. At the time, they were just six friends, with their numbers being made up of Amber Menninger, Melvin Knight, Angela Marinucci, Ricky Smearns, Peggy Miller, and Robert Master. They had come to know one another through hardships of their own because, not long before the brutal slang of Jennifer Dougherty, a lifetime of petty crime and bad decisions had left Amber finding herself at a personal low point when she was forced to take up temporary residence at a homeless shelter in Washington State. It was there she would find a new friend and lover in the form of Melvin Knight, someone who had mental and social problems of his own after having suffered a head injury at the age of five. 
But that wasn't the only struggle he had to deal with growing up, because while his future victim at least had a good family life to fall back on, Melvin's father went to prison while his son was still a young boy, so it should go without saying that he didn't want to end up falling into the same patterns himself, especially as his father had become overwhelmed by a life of crime and drug abuse. And that was why, when Amber suggested the two pack things up and move across the country in search of a better life, he jumped at the chance. Cut to January of 2010, and the duo had found themselves in Pennsylvania, where Amber was able to secure a place to stay. She had a friend who lived in Greensburg named Ricky Smearns, a sex worker and Philadelphia gang member she'd previously met in prison while she was serving a short sentence sometime prior. They wouldn't be alone staying at this apartment either, because also living there would be the other three members of the Greensburg Six, Peggy, Robert, and Angela the latter of whom was actually the girlfriend of Ricky. Of course, it should come as no surprise to anyone that the reason Ricky and Angela had bonded as well as they had was because they had gone through their fair share of traumas throughout their lives. In the case of the former, this meant being abandoned by his parents at birth and from there being shifted around from foster home to foster home all throughout his childhood. And it was this life with no roots, combined with the fact he would suffer from abuse and neglect while living in these various institutions that would see him begin to develop mental health issues by the time he was four years old. Once he was adopted by the Smearns family at age 10, his struggles would only continue from there as he would be subjected to a battery of physical and sexual abuse from both his adopted father and his uncle. Needless to say, this led to him developing PTSD and from there self-medicating with drugs and alcohol. Two things that would be a recurring problem for him going forward. But it wasn't just abusing himself he would develop a habit of at this point because by the time he was 11, he had moved on to hurting others when he broke into a neighbor's home and burglarized them. Then later that same year, he went one step further when he sexually assaulted a woman in her basement. Of course, he would be arrested and charged as a minor for those crimes, but given the state of his mind at that point, there was little hope that incarceration was going to be able to turn him around. Instead, things would only get worse as he developed multiple personality disorder, with him at one point claiming to have as many as seven different alters or alternate personalities within him. That was why, when he met Angela around 2010, he felt he found a kindred spirit as she was also someone struggling with both a prior head injury and addiction issues of her own. In her situation, though, these issues were not brought on by sexual abuse. No, instead she would start to feel the weight of depression after being hit by a truck when she was just 15 years old a couple of years prior in 2008. As a result of that, the subsequent head injury she endured would severely alter her behavior and send her on a downward spiral of dark thoughts. And that would all lead to her meeting who she believed to be the love of her life and the man who could help her turn things around soon thereafter. But as you may have noticed, this meant that at the time they began dating, Angela was a minor, so any sexual relationship she had with Ricky would legally be classified as statutory rape. With that fact in mind, they knew they had to be careful about who they let into their circle and spill the truth about what was going on. Luckily for them, Amber and Melvin were two people they quickly realized they could trust and so, as the group of a half a dozen began spending more and more time together, they would develop a tight bond with each other. 
And that's where Jennifer Dougherty returns to the story because, during one of her trips to Greensburg, she met Angela at the West Center, a local stop in the Greensburg area for people with special needs. With the two having similar developmental issues, they quickly bonded with one another. So much that, once they parted ways that first afternoon, they'd continue to stay in touch, often speaking over the phone for hours at a time as they grew closer and closer with each passing day. And the friendship between the two would soon spill out to the rest of Angela's circle as the more Jennifer would visit Greensburg for her health appointments, the more she would see Angela, with this eventually resulting in her being introduced to the others too. As it happened, in fact, the more she got to know the group when she started spending time with them, the more she'd come to feel like she'd found kindred spirits amongst them as well. After all, here were people who, while not suffering from the same issues as Jennifer was specifically, had each gone through their own hardship in life and had come out on the other end still surviving. And in the case of Melvin Knight, he actually did suffer from similar developmental problems on account of his prior head injury. It wasn't Melvin who garnered the most interest from Jennifer amongst her new social circle, though. No, that spot would be saved for Ricky Smearns. Why was that? Well, it appeared that, after getting to know him and the various troubles he'd undergone during his childhood, the young woman from Mount Pleasant would develop something of a crush on him. But while this would end up becoming a major problem, she had no idea any of this was coming yet. No, she was quite ignorant of simmering issues. So, when in early February 2010, Angela suggested that her friend come and stay with her for the night, she jumped at the chance. But why wouldn't she? After all, this represented her first real taste of freedom. Being in a different town away from her family for the entire night, this was a big moment in the young woman's life. And it wasn't just her who felt this way. Her family were all in on the idea too. This was a feeling they'd been having for some time by then as, at one point prior, so happy were the Doggerties with the direction Jennifer's life was taking ever since she'd made these new friends. They'd see it as an opportunity for her to further assert her own independence by finding a place of her own in Greensburg. If she did that, they reasoned, she would still be close enough to come see them whenever she needed to, as it was only about a half an hour away. On top of that, she'd also be in a position where she could take care of herself and have a support network of friends around her so as to help her move on to this next important phase of life. But any thoughts of a permanent move would have to be put on the back burner for now because on February 10th, it was all about seeing how that first overnight visit went. And so, excited about the prospect, on this morning, Jennifer would pack her overnight bag and then type out a message on her MySpace profile which read, quote, This is my time to make a new start for myself and making new friends and not being afraid of anything. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. After that, she'd write out another letter, this time a handwritten one to her mother, who had by then gone to work for the day, stating that she would be back the following afternoon. Given her nature as a caring person above all, that wasn't all she put in the letter. No, once she'd left her friend's contact details in case of emergency, she signed off with what turned out to be her last words to her mother. Quote, 
I hope you will have a good day at work, and I also love you very much. I will talk to you sometime later. Given what would soon happen to her by then, it only makes these final words all the more tragic. But this wouldn't be the last time she had any contact with her family at all because it would be her stepfather, Bobby, who drove her to the bus station from there. Once he dropped her off safe and sound, she gave him a characteristic kiss on the cheek and said her farewells, all before jumping out and getting onto the bus which would unwittingly be taking her to her doom. A little more than half an hour later, she arrived at the bus station in Greensburg where she was met by Amber, Melvin, and Ricky, who took her back to their apartment nearby. Unfortunately, though, that would also be the last anyone would see or hear of the woman until the following day when her body was discovered in a garbage can outside of Greensburg Salem Middle School. The fact that she hadn't returned home yet had already set her family on edge, and while they had initially hoped it was something as simple as a delay in her transportation that was the cause of it, their worst fears would ultimately be proven true when Jennifer's body was identified and they were contacted by the authorities. Understandably then, the Doggerties were devastated by this news and immediately began blaming themselves. After all, how could they let a young woman who was in such a vulnerable state out by herself for the night, knowing the risk they put her in? But while it was easy to see how their minds went there initially, as time went on and they were able to see through the fog of grief, it became clear that they hadn't done anything wrong. Jennifer had been semi-independent for a long time prior to that as she regularly had been traveling by bus herself to and from appointments. When it came to the fact they had left her alone all night, well, they hadn't really done that because she was supposed to be with her friends, people she trusted who would take care of her. Clearly that hadn't happened, however, and instead something had gone very, very wrong. But how could anything have managed to reach this point over the course of one night? Well, that was what the police now had to figure out. And the case they now had on their hands was even more pressing because this was not just any simple murder. No, analysis of Jennifer's body post-mortem would find that not only had she been stabbed multiple times, but that evidence pointed towards her having been tortured prior to her death. Why would anyone want to do that, especially to such an innocent person? Well, that would come out in the days that followed. But while it was pretty clear who the prime suspect should have been right away, no one in Jennifer's family wanted to believe that her new friends could have been capable of carrying out such an act. Instead, it was much easier to imagine something had happened between her getting on the bus in Mount Pleasant and making it to Angela's apartment around an hour or so later. Perhaps, as they reasoned, she'd met someone on the bus who had then kidnapped her, or perhaps someone had picked her up on the street and taken her away with them. Obviously, these were the explanations which were more comforting to consider. After all, a loved one being killed is an unthinkable burden to have to bear either way, but it somehow felt worse to imagine the act had been carried out by someone she trusted. Unfortunately, though, it soon became very clear that the worst-case scenario was the real one. After investigators went to Angela's apartment and questioned both her and her friends, the truth would come spilling out. So what had happened then? Well, pretty quickly after Jennifer had arrived back at her friend's place... Things had gone sour as, unbeknownst to her, they had already made plans for how the evening was going to go ahead of time. That would start with all six being present as they immediately began bullying and mistreating their guest, something she no doubt felt confused about as she'd been under the impression she was coming for a friendly visit. Instead, though, she was taken right back to her days in high school where other kids would pick on her. 
But this was far worse than just calling her names and putting gum in her hair. No, this quickly spiraled into uncontrollable levels as, in what proved to be the introduction for how the next 36 hours would go, they first stole her purse and took her money and cell phone away. After that, as the others were ruining what remained of her purse by pouring various fluids into it, Angela and Amber would ramp things up by repeatedly taking turns at beating the helpless young woman with items such as a towel bar, a vacuum cleaner hose, a crutch, and a full two-liter lemonade bottle. As if that wasn't enough, they'd all then take turns at further humiliating the confused and scared woman by repeatedly stomping on her chest and stomach, then holding her down and forcing her to drink a variety of fluids. We're not talking soft drinks or alcohol here. No, at various points these substances would include detergent, urine, cooking oil, nail polish, and even feces was forced down her throat. When her captors got bored with that, they also poured these same fluids over her head along with oatmeal and spices to boot. Jennifer tried to fight back and defend herself from the assault, at one point even managing to get a shot in at the stomach of Amber. She was informed that Amber was pregnant with her baby, so, as a result, her punishment would have to get even more severe. That led to the next stage of her abuse, when she was tied up with Christmas ornaments so that she couldn't fight back. After she was secure, she had her head shaved and her face painted with even more nail polish. The unsuspecting victim was still confused as to how all this had started, but no matter how much she begged them to stop at this point, they wouldn't do so and they wouldn't offer any explanation as to their actions. It would only get worse from here though as, after suffering such demeaning and inhumane abuse already, Jennifer would be abused even more when Melvin stripped her naked, gagged her, then raped her, all while the others watched in amusement. Once the sexual assault was over, scared, traumatized, and not knowing what was going on or why, one final indignity was leveled at the mentally challenged young woman as, on account of all the fluids which had been dumped on her, she was told that she smelled bad and that she needed to go take a shower. For as degrading as that was, it did at least offer a mild silver lining to the situation as it allowed her a brief reprieve so as to get away from the others. After she returned from the shower, however, such time for reprieves would be over and the abuse would pick up right where it left off. At a certain point following this, though, it did seem as though the group, who would soon go on to become known as the Greenberg Six, were starting to grow weary of their assault. But this wasn't because they'd suddenly developed a conscience and felt guilty about their actions. No, it was because they'd simply become tired of continually beating and abusing the woman who was supposed to be their friend. So, upon deciding that they didn't want to continue any further, they now had two options to choose from let Jennifer go and hope she wouldn't tell anyone about what had occurred there, or kill her and stop her from having the chance to ever speak to anyone again. Of course, Jennifer begged for the former option at this point, desperate as she was to go home. She still had no idea why this had happened to her, but as far as she was concerned, if she could just get out of the situation with her life, then that would be a problem for another day. Unfortunately, though, the group quickly realized this was a bad idea, as once she got home, there was no way she wasn't going to tell everyone about the crimes which had been inflicted upon her. So that was why, on the morning of February 11th, the group came to the conclusion that they had no choice but to take drastic action so as to protect themselves. And this led to all six unanimously voting to kill their victim. 
Once that had been decided, they had to figure out how they were going to commit the actual act. And after some more discussion, the method they eventually settled on would see them first force Jennifer to write out a suicide note, all in the hope that, once it was discovered alongside her body, it would appear to a casual observer that she'd taken her own life. The fact that this logic seemed to ignore the numerous injuries on her body, as well as the way she would be stuffed into a garbage can after her death, however, seemed to suggest they hadn't thought this one through very well. But then again, this clearly wasn't a group of master criminals, just people holding a mystery grudge. And that grudge would be taken to its fullest conclusion once Jennifer finished writing her own suicide note. Ricky handed Melvin a knife and instructed him to stab her in the chest. Perhaps in a mild twinge of conscience, Melvin would at least hesitate before he delivered what turned out to be the killing blows. And that wasn't the only suggestion. The group were by then starting to feel guilty because prior to her stabbing, they fed her a cocktail of antibiotics and sleeping pills, perhaps in the hopes that they would knock her out so that she didn't feel it when the end came. Of course, she would feel it though as, after stabbing her three times in the side, chest, and throat and leaving her to die, Melvin would return to Jennifer soon after and realize she was still clinging to life, and he wouldn't be alone in noticing it either. No, Ricky would also see and reportedly say out loud, quote, Dang, this bitch is still alive. Not that she would be alive for much longer, however, because, after being fully aware that her end was coming, one final slash to the wrists from Melvin Knight would finally put the girl out of her misery. As she lay there dead on the floor of their apartment, the group would offer one final indignity when they wrapped her up in Christmas decorations, something Angela Marinucci would later claim was done to make it look like she was a Christmas tree. Unfortunately for her and the rest of her conspirators, though, the lights Jennifer had been wrapped up in would not work properly, and so, enraged by this, she would decide they would have to dump the body instead. Of course, the fact that the dumping of the body seemed to be such a spur-of-the-moment decision does carry the horrifying implication that, had those lights worked, the group were going to keep their victim on display in their apartment for a while before finally ridding themselves of her. And if that is indeed the case, it makes the whole situation even more gruesome as it takes us out of the realms of a simple murder and into the areas of folks like Ed Gain or Jeffrey Dahmer, two men who notably liked to keep trophies of their victims. In the end, however, this wouldn't be the case for the Greensburg Six, as after removing the Christmas lights and stuffing the suicide note in their victim's back pocket, they transported the young woman's body to her final resting place inside of a trash can next to a school. Even the dumping ground of Jennifer Dougherty carried horrifying implications and suggested that the perpetrators of the crime truly had no sense of empathy. Had the unnamed truck driver not discovered her body later that day, it's very likely a child would have been the one to do so on the way to school the following morning. Luckily then, this didn't happen and instead it was an adult who realized what was going on. Such a silver lining wouldn't mean much for Jennifer's family at this point as they were still trying to process the loss of their loved one. And part of the process of dealing with that was to figure out why it had happened. Why would these six people who claimed to be Jennifer's friends want to harm her in such a vicious and inhumane way? While it was expected that it would all come out soon enough, the reasons behind the crime still remain somewhat hazy to this day, though that's not to say there aren't plenty of theories out there. Some have speculated that this was a simple case of a hate crime, one committed against the young woman because of her mental disability. Others, though, find this explanation to be a little too far-fetched, 
as there was no sense during the subsequent trial that any of the Greenberg Six had prejudiced attitudes toward the disabled in general. In fact, a number of them were suffering with disabilities of their own, so this didn't really add up for the most part. What felt far more viable for the majority of people was the idea that the whole thing had been carried out as a result of jealousy. With this jealousy starting when Angela noticed her new friend appeared to have a romantic interest in her boyfriend, Ricky. It appeared that Jennifer may have been developing something of a crush on one of her killers, and by the looks of it, it didn't go unnoticed. Was that a valid enough motive for the entire group to then torture and kill her? Well, while it might seem a little far-fetched, it certainly fits better than any other explanation, especially as, during the trial itself, information would come to light which suggested there was a full-blown love triangle blooming between the three. As it would be revealed, while on one of her early trips in Greensburg, Jennifer had first been introduced to Ricky via Angela, and at that point it appeared the two may have hit it off more than anyone knew at the time, especially to where they would soon begin professing their love to one another. During interrogation tapes which were recorded while he was in custody, Ricky would admit that he had secretly been in love with his victim, and that she had also been in love with him. In fact, prior to her sleepover on that fateful night, she had actually visited his apartment on numerous occasions before so that the two could get intimate while Angela was out. According to him, his partner had even realized what was going on when she caught him talking on the phone to his secret lover one night. So with her growing angry over that apparent betrayal, she decided the girl she thought was her friend needed to be put in her place. And this would see her discuss the situation with Amber soon afterward, where the two then came up with the plan which ultimately ended in Jennifer's death. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, you could make a solid argument that having an affair with a friend's boyfriend is certainly reason for the two to have a falling out. But even if it's true, it certainly doesn't justify what took place after that. No, what the Greensburg Six would eventually do in order to get their revenge on Jennifer would be one of the vilest crimes the state of Pennsylvania had ever seen. And so, when it came time for the trial on November 3rd of that year, it was expected the book would be thrown at all of them. First, though, the court would have to hear all of the details of what had happened so that they could come to a decision. And that would include testimony from a number of people close to Angela Marinucci who claimed she had expressed her desire to kill Jennifer in the days leading up to the act. It seemed to prove that the final killing blow could not be considered an act which was committed in the heat of the moment and had indeed been premeditated. And if that was the case, it meant the overall list of charges against the group, which by then included kidnapping, rape, torture, and conspiracy to commit murder, would also include first-degree murder as well. By this point, you might be wondering why so much has been made of four of the perpetrators and not Peggy Miller or Robert Master. After all, they were involved in the crime, as evidenced by the fact they were prosecuted along with the others. That was because, for as implicit as they may have been in the meeting which took place discussing whether or not to kill their captor, it appeared they had not directly taken part in any of the torture or the eventual murder itself. 
with them instead choosing to just stand back and let it all play out. Did that make them innocent? No, far from it in fact as, by choosing not to stop things when they could have, they were fully implicit in the proceedings under Pennsylvania state law. And as a result of that, despite not actually taking part in the murder, they could still be charged with it, especially as they had apparently voted yes during the debate over whether to end Jennifer's life. On top of that, they had also been tasked with keeping watch over Jennifer at one point while the others were planning out how to best torture her next. And when Jennifer had pleaded for them to let her go, they neglected to do so, instead letting the rest of the group know what she had asked of them and increased her subsequent suffering that much more as a result. Their lawyers would claim they only participated because they were scared of what might happen to them if they didn't. After all, if their friends were willing to go to such lengths to torture and kill a woman they had up until recently considered their friend, who was to say they wouldn't do the same thing to them? In fact, Robert would even claim that, at one point, he had been able to retrieve Jennifer's clothes after they'd been thrown out the window and was going to help her get out of there up until the point the others returned and closed his window of opportunity. In the end, though, the court was hesitant to believe his excuse and neither were the family members of Jennifer, with them describing Peggy and Robert as being just as evil as the rest of them as a result of their inaction. With both public sentiment and a wealth of evidence pretty much universally being against the defendants, Amber Medinger quickly realized her best option for getting any kind of leniency was to plead guilty to all charges. Still, though, she wouldn't completely peg herself as being the one in the driver's seat of the plan to kill Jennifer as. Instead, she claimed it was Angela who had come up with the scheme initially. This, combined with other evidence which painted a clearer picture of what had taken place, led to the court deciding that Angela was indeed the instigator of the entire crime. As for the other two defendants, Ricky Smearns and Melvin Knight, they ultimately saw the writing on the wall as well after it became clear the evidence against them was too overwhelming to beat, something which led them to also plead guilty. But this still left the unanswered question of why, if Ricky was indeed in love with Jennifer, had he agreed to take part in her torture and eventual murder. According to him, the only reason he'd chosen to go along with the whole thing was out of fear that if he didn't, Angela would hurt him. That explanation seemed unlikely, and the court eventually agreed, as they would have no sympathy for Ricky's claims or any of his own pleas for leniency over the months which followed. As they saw it, in fact, he may have felt threatened by his partner after she'd discovered what was really going on, but the idea that he would willingly torture and murder someone he supposedly loved as a result of this seemed altogether ridiculous. With all six now admitting their roles in the crime, the only thing left to do was lay out sentences for each, and these sentences would be staggered over the next couple of years, with the first coming on August 3rd, 2011, when the ringleader herself, Angela Marinucci, was given a mandatory life sentence without the possibility of parole after being found guilty of first-degree murder. She was lucky this was all the punishment she had to endure because, with the crime taking place in the state of Pennsylvania, it would normally leave a person eligible to receive the death penalty. Fortunately for her, however, she was still 17 at the time of the murder and considered a minor in the eyes of the law. As a minor, she could not be sentenced to death, meaning that she would instead be locked behind bars indefinitely. Seemingly showing no remorse for her actions, she chose not to accept that decision and instead took the whole thing to appeal, 
and it was at the appeal that she actually got the ineligibility for parole briefly revoked on account of a new Supreme Court ruling which had been made in 2012. In 2015, however, the previous sentence was put back in place again, meaning that, as it stands today, she won't be able to get out of prison until 2070. As for the other perpetrators, they would also be hit hard by the full force of the law during their sentence, especially Amber Medinger, because although she was able to escape the death penalty by offering to testify in court, she would ultimately be found guilty of third-degree murder, kidnapping, and conspiracy, and on December 4, 2013, would end up being sentenced to 40 to 80 years behind bars. Seeing the rest of her life slipping away from her, she also attempted to get a pardon from the court after the fact by claiming that she was regretful of her actions and that she would be better served by being a free woman where she could rebuild her life. Needless to say, this attempt to get her sentence commuted was largely laughed off by those in a position to do so and, as it stands today, she won't be eligible for parole until February of 2050. What makes her particular situation all the more tragic is that, since going to prison, her child has been born. And because both of that child's parents are locked up for the foreseeable future, it means they had to be placed into foster care where they'll never have any contact with them for a long time to come. Hopefully then, the child goes on to live a full life, and even if the lingering shadow of the crime their folks committed hangs over them, at least they'll likely never have to confront their father face to face because, while attempts to obtain a death sentence for both Angela and Amber ultimately failed, the same could not be said for Ricky Smearns. In the case of the man who had been the object of Jennifer's affections, he was ultimately sentenced to death on February 28, 2013, following a full confession which saw him admit to everything he'd done over the course of that two-day period. Of course, he would appeal his death sentence immediately after it was delivered, but in February of 2017, the courts chose to uphold it, with them feeling that there was no real justification for letting Ricky live given what he had done. And he wouldn't be the only one sentenced to death either, because Melvin Knight also received the ultimate penalty on April 12, 2012, with his fate seeming to be sealed not only by the brutal nature of his actions, but by the fact that, when the details were later relayed to him in court, he reportedly burst into laughter. If the others showed little remorse for what they had done, this was small potatoes compared to how Melvin reacted as he appeared to be positively happy about what had taken place. And let's not forget that it was him who not only went as far as to rape Jennifer, but also him who delivered the killing blow, making him arguably the worst of the entire bunch. With that in mind, after his conviction for both first and second degree murder, kidnapping and conspiracy to commit murder, he was placed on death row alongside Ricky where the two remain to this day, awaiting the moment they'll finally be put out of their misery just as their victim had been years before. That leaves us with only two remaining criminals, the two which had the least direct involvement in the murder, Robert Master and Peggy Miller. In Robert's case, it would be determined that, as he had indeed played a role in the horrible attack, on December 19, 2013, he was sentenced to 30 to 70 years in prison on a conviction of third-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. He avoided the death penalty as it was determined he had less involvement than the rest. And the same would be the case for Peggy because, after also pleading to third-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder, 
she'd get 35 to 74 years behind bars, a sentence which she's still carrying out. For the family of Jennifer Dougherty, this is only a minor victory as, even if the perpetrators may never be free men and women again, none of that will ever bring back their loved one. Instead, they have to live the rest of their lives knowing that not only was she brutally murdered, but that she was all too aware of what was happening to her the entire time and, as a result, was no doubt under an unimaginable level of stress. And of course, this is all made even worse by the fact that here was a woman with the emotional age of a teenager, someone who was helpless and had been betrayed by the very people she put her trust in. As it was put by forensic pathologist Cyril Wetched, quote, you have one young, defenseless woman, six people who are keeping her captive and doing all these things, knowing she is mentally challenged. Put it all together, it is bizarre. It is extreme barbarism. Jennifer's sister Joy would only add to those feelings when, following the trial, she went on record as saying, quote, Jennifer was exploited, and her kindness and her handicap made her very vulnerable. She did not have a single mean bone in her body. In that sense, then, this truly has to rank as one of the vilest crimes in recent history, and it's continued to cause Jennifer's family to, in many ways, blame themselves for what happened, as can be seen in how her mother spoke about the crime sometime later when she said, quote, My biggest regret is forcing her to act like an adult. While no reasonable person would blame Denise for wanting better for her daughter and encouraging her to be more independent, it's easy to see why, in her own mind, she could see this as being what ultimately led to her death. So even if the law has reached a conclusion, the Dockerties likely never will. Hell, this was even stated outright by Jennifer's stepfather Bobby once they left the court on the day of the final decision, when he told reporters, quote, Closure is Jennifer coming back to us, and Jennifer won't come back to us, so there's no closure. Still, at least some good may come out of the whole situation yet because, as a direct result of this crime, proposals have been put forward for new legislation to be introduced in America, legislation which would be named Jennifer's Law. And the law, if passed, would make it illegal for someone to witness a violent crime and then not report it to the police, with violation making someone culpable in the third degree. As it currently stands, this legislation is yet to pass, but things like these can take a long time and that doesn't mean it won't be enacted in the future. If it is, this will at the very least allow Jennifer's name to be remembered for something truly positive as it may help to stop situations like this from getting to the point of murder again. Considering how much she loved people and only wanted to do good by them, this really is the best thing that can be done to honor her legacy. A legacy which, if all goes well, will no longer have to be defined by the one horrific 48-hour period where, as a result of the crime of falling in love, she was tortured, raped, and murdered in the most brutal manner imaginable by not only one monster, but six of them. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, 
please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.